Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. Well, welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke, ready to catch you up on what happened this week that maybe you missed or maybe you have questions about. We are question answerers here, and by we, I mean my panelists. Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Welcome back, Alex. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Of course. And Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Hey, you, Brian. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. Good to have you, the musical Brian Callanan, as you hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, by the way, if seeing is believing for you, then believe it. You can see the show because we're live streaming it on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, you just search KUOW Public Radio. Let's get right into it on Week in Review. And for our first topic, I'm, I'm going to hand the introduction over to one of our panelists, Brian Callanan. You might have heard we got a little problem with the West Seattle Bridge. Uh-huh. I had to shut it down that road to downtown, but just back it up a smidge. Okay. Before you think about crying or putting on a mean old frown, uh-huh. everyone remember you just can't keep West Seattle down. Yeah, that's my that's my jam, Bill. Brian, Brian, <laughs> you you believe West Seattle is the best Seattle? I say that, and I will keep saying that. West say Seattle it. is awesome. Uh, they've been very resilient. Uh, we're talking about the West Seattle Bridge opening now. It looks like on September 18th, which is great news. I will believe it when I see it because there's been a lot of delays with this. But this is a very resilient community. I should point out that uh, South Park, Georgetown, also being very resilient through this more than two years of this shutdown. And it's been a big, big imposition on a lot of different people. Yes. Thank you for your service, Georgetown. You bet. And, I do what I can. Yeah. White Center and South Park. Uh, oh, yeah. We have a transportation reporter here, David Croman. How solid is that? Oh, he, You just heard uh, Brian will believe it when he sees that. How solid is September 18th? Well, it's it's more solid than it was about a month ago because they, they had already come out and said uh, week of September 12th. But that, that had a lot of caveats to it and, and they weren't putting a specific day on it. But since then, they've they've done the kind of bulk of the post-tensioning work, which is basically like, you know, if you think of the bridge as an accordion, you all the steel cables inside, they tighten those and then, it, you know, accordions shut a little more strongly. And that, that was kind of the last big step um, or the kind of most significant step. And they have they have done that. It, it appears to have gone well. Um, so uh, more solid than it was a month ago. They, they also caveated that uh, in construction projects this big, there's always possibly unforeseen consequences. Um, you know, they still have to do they still they do still have more legitimate things they have to do, like carbon wrapping and, you know, installing monitoring software and things like that. But um, it, it, you know, I, I don't think they would give a date this specific if they didn't feel pretty confident that they could meet it. Who thinks the commute will snap right back to how it used to be versus um, work from home permanently changing the game? Oh, man, I just from a West Seattleites perspective, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people are eager to use it. But I think a lot of people over the past two plus years did figure out how to work from home. So I, I, I feel like it's going to be something gradual. Yeah, there's going to be some excitement over that over the first couple of weeks, et cetera. But I'm not sure. I think a lot has changed in West Seattle and a lot has changed around the country with the advent of COVID. And I'm not I'm not certain how that's going to go, but it will be nice to have a little less uh, competition and congestion on the south end of things. A lot of people use the First Avenue South Bridge right now just to spread out that load a little bit from where it is now. That's going to be really helpful for a lot of drivers and commuters. Yeah, it's not just work from home. People have found there are other routes and maybe you find the First Avenue South Bridge or 14th or whatever a little more pleasant. Uh, Alex, what was your reaction to to any of this? Oh, I thought of you actually because you're at Puget Sound Business Journal and here I'm I'm sort of asking a business question when I say how, you know, how how are, is our commute different these days? Yeah, definitely. One thing we track, well, two things is a lot of sublease activity, you know, in office space, um, office space vacancy, and then definitely um, looking at metrics of how much those offices are occupied compared to pre-pandemic levels, you know, we'll probably never get to 100% or won't get there for many years. You know, I myself go into the office, but it's only two to three days a week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, over the past month or so, what you've seen is it sort of plateau at 40 to 45 percent in Seattle, um, keeping up with national averages. So what I'm going to be monitoring, looking at is, you know, once those 100,000 plus people who can can commute to the city more easily are able to, if that, you know, jumps up into the, you know, high 50s, high 60s of pre-pandemic levels, which I think would give a huge shot in the arm to downtown. Um, but, I mean, that's just more people, you know, going to the businesses, getting lunch, going to happy hours. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just real quick on that, Alex, I had seen some stats about this, the Downtown Seattle Association saying, hey, by the end of the, end of the summer, we're going to get that that vacancy rate down. We're going to see 70% uh, numbers by the end of the summer. Do you think that's reasonable at all? Is that going to happen? They're really rosy about it. You know, I check in with them sometimes um, and depending on the day, they're a little more optimistic than in others. Mm. Um, I I think it's kind of unknowable, right? Every month we see like a kind of a new trend and something will affect it. But once it gets easier to go downtown, um, Mm. you'll I just naturally think you'll see that number rise. Now, whether it gets to 70, that's, that's pretty high. Um, I think like mid-50s, low-60s. Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman, there was that huge debate. Should we repair the West Seattle Bridge or replace it? Did anything that happened or or numbers that came in over these two and a half years, has anything answered that question? I, I think, well, because when they were first kind of considering that repair or replace, at least in the early stages of the debate, there was some uh, thought that the repair would would maybe buy at another decade or so. I, I don't remember exactly the, the year, but it was it was truly seen initially as a pretty temporary option. But as as they got more information from engineers and contractors and things like that, they're now saying they can extend that lifespan by 40 years so um for the cost in the four 40 years four zero another four decades yeah Yeah. um and and so you know replacement obviously would have cost a lot more and then um probably most significantly to the people of west seattle it would have taken a whole lot longer to to do um so i have not heard i have not heard any in in recent basically in the last year have not heard any second guessing about the decision to go with the repair option um, of course, you know, it, that is dependent on it actually lasting another 40 years, which I don't have any reason to doubt that number. But um, and, and right now, not having the benefit of knowing what's going to happen 40 years into the future. Um, I, I, yeah, like I said, I, I, I'm not hearing a lot of uh, disagreement around that decision or second guessing of that decision. Yeah, I, I think from a West Seattleites perspective, so many people were eager to get that bridge open as soon as possible. And I think that's what public officials were weighing, Bill, just how soon can we get this? Because that cost of lost time, commute hours, et cetera, that adds up too. So I think that was some of the political math that then Mayor Jenny Durkin was going into when she looked at the situation. And rather than a replacement that might be more expensive and certainly logistically a lot more difficult, went with the repair. And I, I'm certainly breathing a sigh of relief. I know it's taken a long time for this to happen, but I'm pretty sure that uh, a replacement would have taken a lot longer. Okay, final question on the bridge, uh, David Croman. What's the next bridge to go? Uh, take your pick. Um, there's there's at least sixteen of them that are uh, seen as seism- seismically unfit in Seattle, according to a recent audit of Seattle bridges. So, um, I mean, the the list of things that are, are in uh, serious jeopardy if Seattle has a big earthquake is um, quite long, um, and among those is are the are the bridges. Um, so. Uh, I, I don't even want to wager a guess because I don't know. You could you could probably choose your favorite bridge, and there's a fairly good chance that uh, it's got some issues. Okay, let's. Uh, that's that's our discussion of the West Seattle Bridge. Our first story here on Week in Review. The news is that the is it the city or the transportation department says that they have a date sort of certain September Sunday, September eighth. The West Seattle Bridge, but what's that going to be? What's 18th. that going to be like? 18th. Sorry, what? Not not eighth, eighteenth. Sorry, sorry. Sunday the eighteenth. Is that going to be a big, um, you know, party? Do you think, or or is it just going to be? What's going to happen on that Sunday? No, I think they had talked at one point about throwing a party, but um, they they they're not going to do that. I mean, I think the um, it it is you know originally. Uh, they were saying that they could have it open in July. Um, the concrete workers' strike 
push that back. And so, you know, the, I think they probably correctly surmise that the optics of a celebration yeah. on a, um, what has basically been kind of a disaster and, yeah. and delay <laughs> mm-hmm. probably didn't look super good. I mean, this is not, this is not sound transit opening a new station in North Seattle. This is a, a restoration of a vital pipeline to people. I think, I think, uh, most folks just want to start driving over it. Party at my place, Bill. Come on over yeah. if you want to. We'll, we'll, we'll get something going. I think you're right. They read the room. That would be a very sarcastic party. Okay, so um, that's uh, September 18th, a Sunday for uh, West Seattle Bridge. Next topic on Week in Review, Donald Trump just helped take down a Washington member of Congress. Republican Representative Jamie Herrera Butler in southwest Washington voted for Trump's impeachment last year. This week, she conceded defeat to Republican Joe Kent, whom Trump endorsed for the primary. KUOW reporter David Hyde says Kent's victory might hurt Republican chances to keep that seat. Election analysts at Cook Political Report changed their rating of the district this week from solid Republican to lean Republican. Cook says Joe Kent's far-right politics could put the district in play for Democrat Marie Glusenkamp-Perez. Kent frequently voices election conspiracy theories and has embraced the racist Great Replacement Theory. So far, Kent's spent nearly $2 million in the race. Glusenkamp Perez, less than $200,000. Alex, what do you think the odds are this district swings back from Republican to Democrat? Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to even put money on this. Um, it's a it's a pretty interesting district for this to happen in, right? It's got Lewis County, which is, I would think, one of the more conservative counties in western Washington. But it's also got a huge part of the Portland metropolitan area with Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of that suburban areas, which do swing kind of red sometimes. Um, but, you know, it's gone back and forth with presidential cam- candidates over the past few decades. Um, but since it's redistricting in 2010, it's uh, went eastward and grabbed up a lot more red votes. And um, I don't think a Democratic presidential candidate has won since Obama's first term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's gone R- Romney, Trump, Trump. And I believe Trump extended his um, vote total um, in the second one. So I would hedge Republican, but I don't know. Brian, your thoughts? It's a tough one to tell. I mean, there were nine candidates in this race. Five of them were Republicans. So they're all splitting the vote. So does that say that Republicans don't want to support a Trump or excuse me, don't want to support anyone but a Trump candidate here? Not exactly. But Mm. with Joe Kent getting that nomination there and getting the getting to run on the ticket there, does that mean they're going to jump ship and vote Democrat? That's a tough call. And and I think you're right, Alex. This is a really difficult one to tell. But nobody got a a strong majority in this one. And Glusenkamp Perez got around 31 percent here. So that certainly wasn't anything strong. But I really feel now that the uh, stakes have been changed here. We're going to see where those dollars fly. And I would have to imagine that with that rating you're talking about there, Alex, we're going to see a lot more Democratic money flowing into that race to try to swing something that, as you say, hasn't been Democrat for some time. Partisanship has gotten so strong, party loyalty, it's hard to get partisan people to switch and vote for the other party. But maybe some Republicans who are sick of Trump just don't vote. Um, I don't know. Hard to say. David, any thoughts? I, I think I think the Democrat would have to to pull quite a few of Jamie Herrera Butler's voters into her camp, um, which, uh, you know, when I look at these things, I, I my if I'm making a prediction, it's basically I predict that the, the thing that has always happened is going to happen again until right. it doesn't. And then I adjust. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I just I don't know that there are that many examples of, you know, half of Republican voters switching from voting Republican in the primary to Democrat in the general. So it seems a stretch to me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess there's also the possibility that there are, you know, a bunch of hidden Democratic voters out there that just assume it's a Republican district and, and maybe none of them voted in the primary something. And now they're all newly motivated, you know, impossible to predict. But um, I was actually kind of surprised when I saw they switched their they, they they jumped basically two categories from solid Republican to lean that seems I, i'm no expert on this that that was surprising to me though that seems like a big jump yeah um, you're, you're talking about that uh that cook political report that david hyde mentioned right yeah with jamie herrera butler they had it solid and now with joe Kent, they have it lean there is a likely in the middle there between those two that um i i would have thought they would have gone with that but um mm-hmm. you know what do i what do i know uh finally Jamie Herrera, but- Herrera Butler conceded the election to Joe Kent this week. Does that mean, uh, Brian, do you know, does that mean there 
will be no recount, even if it's close, or is a recount automatic? There, there are some automatic recounts if it's less than 0.5% uh, separating the two candidates. It looks like it's at that number right now, so an automatic recount may be triggered. But I got to say, when someone concedes a race, it's over. So I think we're looking ahead to see what Joe Kent does. But we'll see what that vote uh, goes forward with. They're going to certify that election on the 16th. So we'll know more information about that in the next couple of days. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's the political news in the 3rd District of Southwest Washington this week on KUOW's Week in Review. Next topic before we take a break, the city of Seattle wants more cops. Now, should it want more cops? How will it get more cops? Well, this week, a city council committee approved hiring incentives like signing bonuses. Brian, these incentives will cost taxpayers more than $5 million. Why do most committee members say it's worth it? Well, they're seeing what's happened with the Seattle Seattle Police Department over the past couple of years. And what they got at their committee meeting this week, Bill, was a report on how many officers the Seattle Police Department has lost in just the first six months of this year, 109 which is a lot more double than what they expected it to be at this time. So they're needing to rejigger a lot of the different things. How many officers are we going to be able to hire here? Because they tried to hire a lot of people during the first six months, and they only got 30, which is less than half of where they thought they would be at this time of year. So the numbers just don't look good in terms of police officers there. And there's a lot of different talk about working up some different alternative responses, et cetera. But number one in the city charter is this idea of providing public safety to everybody. And the mayor, at least going forward, proposed this idea to say, hey, we need to at least try to keep up with the other jurisdictions around our area that are offering these hiring bonuses to bring in these people, lateral hires, as they're called, from other departments or new hires. So they're just trying to do what they can to recruit and retain any officer right now because they're losing them very quickly. And it's a big cause of concern for the police department. Well, Brian, it was almost unanimous, but why did committee member Teresa Mosqueda say she voted no? She was concerned about this for a few different reasons. She definitely wanted to make sure that she voiced her support for different alternative policing methods. She brought that up. But she also said in talking with some of the human services providers that she deals with, they have actually been talking with police on the street. And the police are telling these human services providers, hey, it's not more money we need. We just need a place to put people that are dealing with mental anxiety, uh, different mental health issues, different homelessness issues, et cetera. So I think there's some tension there. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the budget because Mosqueda is the budget chair. So this is one part of the discussion, Bill. It's definitely going to ramp up again when it becomes budget time here in the fall. So watch for more from the city council on this. There's, There's going to be some fireworks for sure. Alex Halverson at Puget Sound Business Journal, what's your take on this news, this ongoing effort to recruit and retain police officers? One thing that really struck me in the coverage, and I could be mistaken, but it seems much more like a recruitment plan than a retention plan. Mm. Um, Almost all the bonuses are for new hires or lateral hires, as they're saying. Now, that might be a moot point because um, I believe two thirds of the officers they lost were to retirement. So maybe retention isn't the problem as much as recruitment is. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know if giving a bunch of sign-on bonuses to recruits is going to help your retention problem. You know, I see this um, with the software development engineers I talked to, right? Um, the companies, they're facing stiff competition. They're offering huge compensation packages and people are coming in making way more than the people above them who have been there for 10 years. So hmm. maybe we'll see that on the police force, but. And, and one, just to throw this in quickly, Alex, I don't think you're wrong, but one piece that is complicating this a little bit is the city is still working out a contract with the Seattle Police Officers right. Guild, yes. their biggest union, right? So I think there's a lot of issues there about, okay, do we put this money here now or do we use that? How's, how's that going to affect negotiations? They haven't a contract for a couple of years now. So that, that's one piece of this puzzle, too. David, Alex mentioned competition in the business world, in the software world. Is there a significant competition among cities, too? Is Seattle, you know, I presume Seattle's competing with other places officers could go. Oh, yeah, very, very much so. It's it's the kind of holy grail in police departments to get, quote, lateral hires, which is essentially steal officers from other departments because new recruits, you have to spend all this money and time training them up. You got to send them through the academy and then they have this probationary period. And that's like a, that's a lot of time and money where you don't have a fully independent officer. So if you can convince somebody to move departments, then you have a, you know, full experienced officer ready to work on day one. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so it's you know it's, it sort of reminds me of you know it's like major league baseball free agency or something like that yeah these departments the these departments and these it's really an arms race you know we, yeah. we keep seeing them one up their signing bonuses and recruitment bonuses and they're trying to swipe officers from each other it just so happens that seattle over the last couple of years has been kind of on the losing end of that i mean a lot of them as alex mentioned are retiring but we, you know it, it does appear that officers have moved to everett or bellevue or you know snohomish or things like that um so um yeah it's 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 tricky you know the the <laughs> part of Bruce Harrell's plan for recruitment and retention is this kind of, you know, PR push to, to get more people in the pipeline. Um, I, I feel like I've now been a reporter long enough to where things start to feel like deja vu. You know, it mm -hmm. seems like every mayor I've covered has had some similar PR effort like this. Mm -hmm. I know Ed Murray did. I know Jenny Durkin did. Uh, and now Bruce Harrell. So um, I think another, another piece of Teresa Mosqueda's skepticism was whether or not that, that those efforts actually do anything, whether they actually convince people to come to the department or not. Mm. Right. Do we need a PR campaign or do we need some more services? I think was a big part of her argument. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, then before we leave this topic, David, uh, someone brought up alternatives, policing alternatives. Right. Does the city right. need fewer cops now because it's sending so many responders who are not police officers? No, I mean, if the if the question is, have they been replaced with something else? The, the answer is basically no. Um, it, you know, th this this area, the the mental health crisis response has always been really fascinating to me because, for all the noise and controversy around defund the police from a couple of years ago, if you actually talk to almost anyone, including law enforcement officers, you know, would you support sending somebody else other than cops to mental health crises or uh, situations? Most people would say yes, including police officers. Um, so there is an, an area of agreement there. And there are, in fact, models in other cities and, you know, Eugene and, and, da and Denver um, around sending kind of people who are not police officers. But uh, the city, for whatever reason, has just not quite been able to get that off the ground and, and moving and or really figure out the logistics for it um, at a time when it does. I mean, I don't want to undersell just how complicated that would be. Um, you know, there's there's questions around safety and how do you know in advance that an officer doesn't need to be there and that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. it does feel like kind of a, an area of agreement among a fairly wide swath of people that um, that uh, maybe you could send somebody else other than a police officer to some of these mental health crises. Right. Right. And Jenny Durkin, when she was mayor up through last year, had a plan uh, for that. And she was talking with the city council about it. It's basically not gone anywhere over the past several months. There's been a lot of concern from council about this. They've tried to ask Mayor Harold to bring this back again, but I think his viewpoint on it, and I'm thinking this through in terms of what he's saying, is that he wants to make sure that he takes care of this police issue first and foremost, wants to kind of stop the bleeding there. And then we can talk about this alternative thing. I think the council would like to try to do both at the same time in some way, just so they can build up these alternate responses while we're looking for police officers too. Okay. Right. But if we're, but also if we're, you know, for, for talking staffing issues, yeah, <laughs> uh, right. certainly it would be no, no easy thing to find uh, an entire force of, uh, you know, social workers or what, whatever it might oh, very be true. Kind of yeah. willing to go out and respond to these on a, on a, uh, yeah, the see a full story. Sorry, David, you broke up a little bit uh, there, by the way, uh, it, David, we're, you're you're breaking, your audio is breaking up a little bit. I have heard, I don't know if this is a myth that shutting down video preserves bandwidth for audio. Uh, I, I don't really know if that's true, but uh, um, you know, if you if you need to leave us visually, David, as long as you're talking with us, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be okay as long as I can hear your voice. Um, the full city council, I believe, votes on this package next week, right, Brian? This uh, yeah. package of hiring incentives. That's yeah. what they would look to do at the full okay. council meeting on Tuesday. I'm fairly certain this is a measure that's going to pass. Had that four votes in support with one abstention on the council, uh, the committee earlier this week. So I do think it's going to pass through. I think it's a great point of discussion for the council going forward, for the police department going forward too. But as I say, I think this is a conversation that's going to continue. Not going to stop here because we'll have to see where these numbers are towards the end of the year. And everybody on the council and the SPD is watching those hiring numbers and those officers separating from the department, watching those numbers, watching them like a hawk. Yeah. Coming up on Week in Review, federal taxpayers paying to keep chip making, computer chip making here in the U.S. of A. 
and a few of those chips going into electric ferries. Uh, we'll tie those together somehow. And more coming up on Week in Review after we take a short break. We'll be right back. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We're streaming the show live on YouTube and Facebook, so maybe we'll see you there. Uh, we're catching you up on what happened this week with my panelists, Seattle Times reporter David Croman, Seattle Channel host Brian Callanan, and from Puget Sound Business Journal, Alex Halverson. Alex, this week Congress passed a quarter of a trillion dollars in subsidies for computer chip companies and investments in technology research. Before I ask you how this affects Washington State, why are taxpayers spending so much on a sector that makes a lot of money on its own? Yeah, because um, the U.S. has kind of fallen behind in chip manufacturing, um, specifically to China. So I'm sure there are some who would try to spin this as, you know, uh, American first type thing. But um, Senator Maria Cantwell, um, Washington senator, has really been billing this as, you know, look how much this can help Washington's um, economy. Right. Washington has a really big manufacturing history, obviously, with Boeing and another companies. So um, I think it's a it's a really big way to try to steer that back here and kind of marry it with our other huge industry, high technology, um, which is what these chips are powering, right? Over the pandemic, manufacturing lost a lot of jobs, uh, I believe around 20,000 in King County area. Um, and those are really slow to recover. Um, on the other end, technology has kind of taken all of those. It's almost a, a match by numbers. So um, it's kind of an interesting trend there. Alex, are you saying local companies care where whether the chips are made in the USA or more that they'll benefit from the technology research part of this congressional package? I think kind of on the latter side of that, right? A lot of the um, money is going to go to like STEM innovation in uh, higher ed, right? Wazoo does a lot of that on the agricultural side, um, kind of make agriculture agriculture more efficient. So I don't think they care about, you know, where it's made, um, especially if they're a big enough company. But if the if the innovation's close, if that kind of tech side of it's close, I think they might like that. Brian, did I detect that you and the Washington, the Wall Street Journal editorial board share some skepticism of how important this government uh, subsidy will be? I think it'll be important, but how long lasting will it be? I think is yeah. the criticism that I've heard because as with any subsidy, you can use that to jumpstart a business, but can you keep that subsidy in place such that they'll be able to catch up, et cetera? I, I'm not quite sure. So for me, it's just about, and I, I'd say this about all different government investments. If you can make that lasting investment, great. But if you can't make a lasting investment, that makes a cliff somewhere in the future. So I'm I'm concerned about how long the subsidy is going to last. Can it bring the American market up to a level where it needs to be? Then great then maybe you can start uh, scaling back some of these subsidies. But it's just sort of that short-term, long-term question, Bill. I think short-term, great idea. Long-term, I definitely have some questions about it. Mm -hmm. David or anyone else, uh, more information or questions about uh, chips and science, as, that, uh, as the slogan goes? I'm going to jump on Brian's point. I think um, you know a lot of companies know how to take advantage of these subsidies, right? Mm. Um, most subsidies are saying, hey, you know, give us this break, we'll bring jobs. But um, if you calculate the cost of a job, uh, it usually ends up in the red, right? I think a lot of it, like with data centers um, in Northern Oregon or in Virginia, um, and even in Washington, you know, they get these subsidies to create all these jobs, but only a few people end up getting hired. So I think that adds to the skepticism as well. That, that might come up when we talk about the Seattle Film Commission a little bit later in the show. Who knows? Okay. Uh, that's that's um, uh, the the chips and science is the I think the name of the uh, the slogan of the I, I generally avoid congressional act slogans because <laughs> they're just propaganda. But uh, uh, it's fun to say chips. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, Washington State ferries are going to receive thirty eight million dollars from the Federal Highway Administration to improve ferry service. 
A part of that has to do with uh, electric ferries that uh, presumably have chips. But anyway, transportation reporter David Croman, how important is this? Well, let me ask you this first. Are we shorter on ferry boats and crews in the Puget Sound region than we have ever been? Because it feels that way to me. I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know about ever. Um, we're certainly in a not good place with crews. Um, the, I mean, a, anybody who is, lives or has even tried to go out to the Olympic Peninsula or anything for a hike knows that <clears throat> the ferries are uh, consistently running on alternative schedules, so, which means that they have cut out at least one boat on some of these routes. The waits are long. Um, so we, we might also be down ferry boats, but in some ways it doesn't matter because the problem of shrew corded or uh, crew shortages is worse than the problem of vessel shortages. So mm-hmm. even if they were at full strength with the boats, they couldn't run them because they don't have enough people to run them. Um, the, you know, this $38 million, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sure Washington State Ferries is happy to have it and uh, hopefully it can help them run better service and bring on more people. But, uh, you know, the the Washington State Legislature this last session budgeted $1.6 billion uh, for the ferry system. So, you know, it's, this is certainly, the, the ferries need um, billions with a B. Uh, their, their long-range plan calls for close to $4 billion in spending to bring on new boats and new service and, you know, electrify the fleet and all those sort of things. So, uh, you know, if you kind of do the math on what $38 million means, it's not, it's not a huge number overall. But again, uh, no one's saying no to $38 million. And, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe it'll mean they can hire up staff more quickly. Yeah, and open the galleys. I promised my kids food on the Anacortes ferry last week, and it was closed. That that have to take up with Sodexo, I think. That is oh. not a Washington State ferry problem. That's a, that's a uh, Sodexo America or whatever you know, whatever the contractor is that run those those um, galleys. All right, I got to keep my shortages straight. And Alex, you were pointing out the that uh, just the boat, just the number of boats itself, how how tight um, we are when it comes to. Uh, how close we are to having a boat down on a run. Yeah, I think David uh, touched on this a little bit, but I was reading the Seattle Times, um, and I had no idea of this, that it takes 19 boats to run a full schedule. Um, and that leaves a pretty small margin because the I guess the ferry system only has 21 boats, and two of those are, can be out for maintenance at any given time. So do the math right there. That doesn't really give a lot of wiggle room for like a freak accident we had in West Seattle last, last week or the week before. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Over by and, Brian. And yeah. Now it's not my fault. It's, okay. it's twenty. It's twenty-one boats. But right now, the the Cathlamet famously is now out because it crashed into the Fauntleroy dock, and who knows what's happening with that. And the Tacoma is also out because it had a run-in with some crab pots. Um, and so it, you know, and then you've got the two that Alex mentioned that are um, they they always keep out two for maintenance repairs. So mm-hmm. uh, really, as of right now, there's only 17 functional boats, and then every now and then you see mechanical issues because you know the the oldest boat in the fleet is literally uh, from like post World War II. It's the uh, I think it's the Tillicum, which runs the route between Point Defiance and Southern Vashon. That's like a 50, 60 year old boat. Um, so all you know, it is it is a constant uh, kind of precarious game of musical chairs with these boats and trying to um, get get them to the right place um, if there are even staff there to run them. And by the way, the, the Kathlamet, it, it veered off course, in case everyone doesn't know, uh, crashed into some pilings, which, by the way, are called a dolphin. And the, the mm-hmm. part of the boat that crumpled is called the pickle fork. So this is already an excellent uh, story, but mm-hmm. and because nobody got hurt. But what whatever happened to that? I heard the ferry captain resigned, but what else do we know? What happened? It's uh, David has more info on it. <laughs> but I, I I would jump in. I I just uh, looking at that. A lot of talk about this in West Seattle. It didn't look like he was under the influence, and that was the big question for me. David, do you have any more details on this one? Because it sounds like it's sort of an unfolding investigation on this. No, I mean, if I had if I had significant more details, I would probably put it in the Seattle Times. Um, hey, uh, you would the, break uh, news right the, here on Week in Review. <laughs> no, uh, we you know, all we know is that I, I, you know, make almost daily calls to the Coast Guard and ask them about it. And oh, uh, so far, every day they've said, uh, no, we don't have anything for you today. Um, we do know that the captain resigned. We don't know why. I mean, the the. 
they have not ruled out that there was some mechanical issue. We we know that this captain was fairly close to retirement anyway. So um, I think it would be easy to jump to the conclusion that because he resigned, it was operator error. But I don't think that would be um, wise at this point to do that, just because we we know very little about exactly what what happened up there. And um, I'm hoping to learn more soon, but the Coast Guard is fairly mum until they have more concrete results. Okay, fair enough. I'm glad that it wasn't concrete. It was just wood that uh, the ferry plowed into. But you, t- I think it was the Seattle Times uh, told me, I didn't remember this, that people, this boat has crashed before multiple times that people used to call it, the, the, the ferry's called the Keth Lamet, and people called it the Crash Lamet. Or the, or the Can't Land It. Or the Can't Land It. The, it's part of the part of this Issaquah fleet of boats that came on in the eighties, and uh, all of them, at least for for years, had had major issues and steering problems. Um, it is uh, they, they've been upgraded since, um, and and while it has crashed again since then, that that one really was operator error. I think in two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's not any, at least a media indication that these boats are the same boats that are in that reputation back in the eighties, but it is, um, there was even a, a radio disc jockey. We wrote about this. There's a radio disc jockey in the early eighties who, um, took Gordon Lightfoot's, uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and turned it into the wreck, wreck the fairy calamity. Yes. Um, and it course. became this big hit at the time. Before so before we, we leave, the, before we disembark, uh, there's a new fast ferry between Seattle and Des Moines. How significant is that? Is that a commute game changer or is that a little boutique run? Anybody? David did the story on it. I, I just thought it was <laughs> cool because it had a it had a neat name called the Chill Cat. Like, oh, jump on board right. and chill aboard the Chill Cat. <laughs> that, that's my idea for a slogan. But David did the real story. Okay, David. Well, Mike, my, my, my colleague, did the real story. Um, the, you know, the there, there is this sort of. Um, I, I think people in this region have a, have this draw towards the mosquito fleet of the of the yesteryears mm-hmm. when there were boats kind of zipping people all over Lake Washington and Puget Sound and things like that. Um, that has grown in recent years with the Kitsap Transit Fast Ferries, which now run from Bremerton, Southworth, and Kingston um, into downtown Seattle. I take the Kingston one regularly. It is actually quite helpful. Um, but those, you know, the difference, of course, is those are communities that you have to take a boat one way or the other to get into Seattle. And this is a faster option. The Des Moines one, um, y- you know, it, this is truly just a, if you if you don't feel like driving on I-5 kind of situation. And so I will be interested to see whether this becomes a you know real practical tool for people or if it ends up being kind of more of a, a novelty. I don't really know. Well, it's like you, a, pilot, a pilot program for Des Moines. They're trying to revitalize a chunk of their, uh, their shoreline there, too. It's a beautiful thing. If you're a busy person, you can get a lot more done on a ferry or on a bus or on a train than when you're having to be behind the wheel. Um, okay. So uh, that I, by the way, I saw that the boat doesn't leave until 10 a.m., doesn't leave Des Moines until 10 a.m. and the last boat leaving Seattle leaves at five sharp. Is that right? That would seem to limit and it, things. And it only runs, uh, I think, Sunday through Wednesday. Yeah. So, hmm. as okay. far as a commute tool, it doesn't um, doesn't scream uh, practical, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Okay, we'll see. We're we're you're listening to KUW's Week in Review. We're going to take a short break. Uh, Alex is going to tell us about his story this week on Amazon robots. And we'll talk about um, we're we're Fifty Shades of Sleepless about uh, how few films are actually produced here, even if they're set here. And we'll figure out a reason to smile. All happening on Week in Review when we come right back. On KUOW's Week in Review, you're getting caught up on the week gone by. Uh, You can do that visually, you know. We're live streaming this on YouTube and Facebook. But you're uh, getting filled in on the news with Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan and the Seattle Times' David Croman and Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Alex, you wrote this week about Amazon wanting to create an underground site in the old downtown Seattle Macy's building. What is Project Lucy? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it's no secret that Amazon um, plays with automation and has robotics. They have robotics in their Kent warehouse and I'm sure other warehouses across the country. But what really struck me is that um, these are specifically for uh, back of the house retail operations. Um, Amazon just shuttered its four star and bookstore that I think in uh, March or April. 
but it's launched its Amazon style stores, which is kind of this tech infused clothing store, right? Um, and it looks like from these documents that they're planning an automated storage and retrieval system. Um, they've got a, what they call a mock-up space um, and training area in the bottom of the Macy's building. And they're building these nine foot towers, um, mostly made out of kind of fabric and it looks like plastic um, called pods. And they'll have these robots kind of go and grab the pods, bring it to uh, an employee who's standing at the, what they call the picking station. And then they'll grab the item of clothing, you know, in the store, it would work. I assume, you know, you're in the dressing room, you want a different size shirt, you tap on their screens, they'll have in the dressing room, say, I want this shirt, the employee will go back, have the robot grab the pod for them, grab the shirt. Um, And it's just sort of this continuation of this uh, supplemental automation that you're seeing um, among Amazon in its retail stores. Does Amazon want to go to its style stores being walk in, walk out, don't deal with a human? Like, like, I don't know if, if like the Amazon Fresh? Yeah, I don't know if it's fully there yet, right? Because these are just back-of-the-house robots, and nothing in the plan suggests that they'll have them, you know, going across the showroom floor getting you stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I speculate that it's um, kind of to cut down on the rate of injuries, you know, in warehouses. Um, people don't have to grab 100-pound boxes of clothing, you know, exert themselves on a ladder. Um, they'll just have the robot do it for them. But uh, these Amazon style stores are really tech infused. You know, I don't know if you recall the movie Clueless, where she picks out her outfit. Um, but yes. That's kind of what the screens look like in the in the dressing rooms. Yeah, yeah Alex, at this uh, and way to drop the Clueless reference. That's awesome, man. <laughs> but uh, I just that's in, way in thinking about time. this. Oh yeah, 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 always. Yeah. But just in looking at this, the I just think about workplace regulations, and is there any talk about that? Those needing to change and kind of adapt with the times here, because. You've got Amazon working on its Zooks project here, that one with the automated cars. And mm-hmm. I know the city is keeping an eye on that to make sure, okay, if you're testing out these cars on the streets, we need to know, is there a similar type of thing within the workplace where workers are saying, okay, robots sound cool and all that, but we want to make sure that this robot is going to drop something on me, et cetera. What's going on on that side of it? You know, I haven't heard much about that. Um, like I said, it looks like a lot of the automation in these kind of kind of places is for you know both efficiency and to cut down on the rate of injuries Mm. um then again that doesn't always happen there's still a high rate of injuries at amazon locations um but the way this is drawn up it seems like the you know the robots will be sort of cordoned off cordoned off from the um employees right they they kind of show a chain link fence where they come uh the employee will stand behind grab Mm. the clothing um so I think they're kind of in the early stages of sort of separating the two but like I said maybe we'll see them on the showroom floor in 10 years. Wow. Okay. We don't have an Am- an Amazon style store yet in the Seattle area by the way. There's one in Glendale, Not California. Yet. There's one in Glendale. I was told by a former uh executive that um if you start to see them pop up, you'll see them in like shopping centers, right? They want to they want to place them next to established brands, Nordstrom's, um Banana Republics, kind of to show that Amazon is a major player in fashion. Right. They're they're hiring influencers. They're um, taking influencers to retreats to sort of advertise their clothing on social media. So, um, Mm. you know, they'll try to be one of those companies one day. This sort of reverse move from uh, into brick and mortar is just so interesting to me. (laughs) Always, It didn't they did that with the bookstores, which I don't think went very well. Um, They shuttered them. Yeah, they shuttered the bookstores. And then they have, of course, their grocery stores and Whole Foods and things like that. But uh, the 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 fashion thing is interesting to me because I guess, yeah, I guess you'd want to try on the clothes before you buy them is the thought. So maybe, maybe the well, kind of online purchasing isn't quite cutting it. It's been explained to me. like I said, by a few former executives that it's, it kind of acts as a adver- advertising tool too, mm-hmm. right? You know, we are an established clothing brand. We've got our own brick and mortar right next to a banana Republic. Um, and I think they see the value in that on top of, they're just able to sell clothes there as well and integrate it in with their e-commerce business. All right, more robot retail workers. Do robots shop and eat downtown? Because <laughs> we can oh, use man. them. And ro- <laughs> ro- robots can't file for a union either. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. very convenient. Yeah. In, indeed. Um, okay. Once the AI gets too smart. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, Not yet. Yeah. Next topic on Week in Review, the city of Seattle is considering creating a Seattle Film Commission to advise the city how to attract film projects. Um, Brian, I guess the city could subsidize any industry. Why film production? This is a really interesting one, Bill, because 
Uh, the gut punch with it is things like Grey's Anatomy, right? It's like, well, that's all filmed up in Vancouver. And so what we've seen here, at least on a state-by-state level, is there is competition for these different tax credits. Some states put hundreds of millions of dollars into this. They attract a lot of different people there. Georgia is one example of that. If you've ever seen that little peach in the Georgia Film Commission at the end of movies, that's, that's an example of that. Mm-hmm. So Washington has been trying to get into the game over the past couple of years, but they've been kind of lagging. They have this thing called the Motion Picture Competitiveness, competitiveness Program. It's been lagging at about $3.5 million. Well, this past session, they ramped that up to $15 million to try to be in better competition with neighboring Oregon and a few other places too. And I think the city with this move to the film commission trying to establish this is trying to harness that. The King County is also working on this too, created a King County creative program recently. So a lot of things are falling into place. Seattle is hoping that this new money from the state can galvanize a new industry. They want to make it inclusive, get a lot of people involved with this, but it's just this idea of trying to compete with other states and there's some new money to do that. And Seattle's trying to capitalize on it. Yeah, so a few minutes ago, we were talking about um, competing with other states and subsidizing industries, and Alex pointed out that sometimes you spend more on the subsidies than you actually get uh, from any jobs created. And I used to live in Orlando, Florida, where where they called it Hollywood East. Mm. And and, and they threw... People so want to be near movie stars and famous athletes and all that, and and there's just so many people lining up willing to throw their money. In the case of Orlando, it was so much money at at wanting to be in the in the movie business. And those production studios in Orlando are defunct. This I realize that's different from what we're talking about with the film commission here. But I, I just wonder, how do we know, especially when we're talking about something that I also used to live in L.A. And there are just so many producers who can't wait to fleece rich people who want to be near the movie business. So I just want to know, how, how do we know whether this is an effective use of money and not sort of a vanity project? Oh, it was filmed in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Poor I, us. I, I really think, I mean, with these tax credits, it's it's built to attract these different companies who, in turn, you know, there's probably some proviso written in there. Okay, you're going to use this local provider for X, Y, and Z if you're shooting here. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's one of those ideas where I hear what you're saying. It's always good to be uh, take a second look at these different programs. But I really do think this is an attempt to look at these dollars that the state has allocated and try to do something with it. King County has actually built a film studio out on Harbor Island in Seattle. Kind of awesome to see that out there and get built up over the last couple of years. There hasn't been a film studio in Seattle since 1996 when Northern Exposure left town. So I'm very interested in this. I'm, I'm just fascinated to see what's going to happen because there are some dollars out there. How is our local region going to galvanize this in some way to make something of it? And and we'll have to wait and see, but it, it I think it'll start to play in when maybe some different movie projects come into the area. Mm-hmm. Are there, are there questions? Like, yeah, there's. I mean, I have um, I have family members who are in who work in film. They they now work in they now live in L.A. But uh, had previously lived and worked in Portland, and so I had a little bit of a view into that. And there was like there's a pretty legitimate kind of industry in Portland of people who make a living uh, making movies. And I always got the sense that that there was just not that kind of parallel industry in Seattle. Um, and so I suppose the hope would be you know, less about the the crew from LA that comes in for a month or whatever and shoots and then leaves again. And maybe more towards what Brian was saying of actually setting up some kind of base of employment in the city. Um, I also think that there's a good amount of just vanity to it and pride. Oh yeah. Um, the, the most recent movie I think that they actually filmed in Seattle was that one with Zoe Kravitz, where it was like Kimmy. a tech dystopian Kimmy. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of cool seeing her run around on the, double helix bridge and inner bay and um but i don't know that anyone outside of seattle actually cares about that as long as you've got that one sweeping shot of the space needle yes. to establish out of heaven and, j- and just even... yeah just just briefly on that david i think the other piece of this is there was a recent report in the, from the puget sound regional council talking about this saying hey we've got a pretty big creative economy here something like two hundred and fifty thousand jobs could be called creatives out there And a recent survey showed that a third of those people were really thinking about leaving the industry entirely. That has something to do with how expensive expensive it is to live in Seattle, but Mm -hmm. it has something also to do with the amount of work that's happening here. So there's a few different pieces at play here, I think. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Okay, Um, so that is a a proposal to set up a Seattle Film Commission and and 
attract, work to attract some of this uh, industry to Seattle. Why not Seattle instead of some, you know, Portland or Vancouver? Um, now it is time with two and a half minutes left to go in the show. I always want to smile at the end. Is there anyone who found something hopeful or happy in the news this week? Mm, I, I know. I, I always talk about Mariners with David. I, I better let you take it, man. I think you're the you've been to more games than I have this season. It's been awesome to watch them go. I've only been to I think I've only been to two, but it does feel like there is a level of energy around the team uh, that maybe hasn't existed since I was like 12. Um, so that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, they're in second place. They'd be they would be right in the wild card hunt if if things ended up right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm smiling because of more uh, more warm weather coming our way. I know that it didn't start off that great in July and I had a little, there were a couple clouds rolling around on July 4th. I was like, really? But I don't know, just seeing another heat wave come our way. Everyone be careful, make sure you stay inside if you need to and stay cool. But, uh, I think it's been a pretty awesome summer so far in terms of the great weather we've been having. And that's brought a big, big smile to my face. It's been great to be outside and just enjoying it. Indeed. Alex, anything smiley? I'm going to take the opposite tact of uh, Brian. The rain Uh-oh. this week really made me smile. Um, <laughs> I've been loving the sun and the heat, but it was nice to have at least one day to to hydrate us. Yes, yeah. a little of both, please. I I will <laughs> I will end then on my smile of the week, which was a tweet from the Northwest Wildfire Coordination Center. Quote: What a difference a year makes. This time last year, 86 fires covering 1.47 million acres. This hmm. year, 21 fires. 111,000 acres, a difference of 1.36 million acres not burning. My wife does not like it when I jinx things. I I don't think jinxes exist, but that is exactly what jinxes want you to think. So, you know, you, you've been warned. Um, this is a week in review, and I'm, of course I'm smiling because I, I got to spend some time with Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan, and Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Thanks for being week in review this week, guys. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Thank you. Kevin Kinestet produces this program. And you know the live streaming that I mentioned? Well, that wouldn't happen without Tio Popescu. And we've got social media support from Juan Pablo Chiquiza. We've got Kim Shepard running the board, making things sound great today. I'm Bill Radke. Thank you for listening. And let's do it again a week from now on the next Week in Review.